This is Ben Weingarten for Encounter Books, and today I'm joined by Judge Stephen F. Williams, author of the new book, The Reformer, How One Liberal Fought to Preempt the Russian Revolution. Judge Williams serves as a senior judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, a position to which he was appointed by President Ronald Reagan. He's previously written about Russian history in his book, Liberal Reform in an Illiberal Regime, The Creation of Private Property Rights in Russia, 1906 to 1915. Judge Williams, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. At the request of Judge Williams, I'm going to refer to him as Steve during this interview. Steve, what is it that draws you to Russian history as a jurist? Well, I guess there are two aspects of that. One, one is what is it that draws me to Russian history at all, uh, and then the role as a jurist. I'm drawn to Russian history because as I grew up, uh, Russia was the the other. It was uh, a represented a system which, in a household in which I grew up, was regarded as dangerous and and uh, evil, an, an evil empire. To to quote. Uh, President Reagan, uh, and in fact, I mean that was that was brought home to me in a very vivid way in my youth because my parents had a friend Frida Utley, who had been a British communist and uh, a journalist also, and she married a Russian who was in London in the uh, I guess the early thirties, uh, some sort of Russian tradition. And she went back to Moscow with him. Uh, and I'm not sure at what point their child was born, but they were living in Moscow in 1937 with the child. And if you know your Russian history, 1937 is a dangerous year. Uh, the knock came on the door. Her husband was taken away uh, and was never seen again by her. Uh, and and that, that was a story uh, which was very vivid. Uh, in my growing up, uh, as you can imagine, I mean, to meet someone whose husband has been torn away essentially to death. Um, and so, so I was very interested in Russia and then the, um, uh, Soviet regime fell in 1991. Uh, and even before it was clear that it was on the ropes. So I was very interested in in what would follow, and I thought that part of the answer to what would follow might lie in its history. And so the, the first first thing I came upon uh, was the question of what what reforms had been tried before the Soviet era, and the most significant of those seemed to me the Stalipin reforms, which were trying to give peasants uh, relatively solid rights in property. The reformer who your book focuses on is Vasily Maklakov. What was life like for him and for lawyers generally in Tsarist Russia at the turn from the 19th to the 20th centuries? Yeah, um, it's a good question. Um, life, um, as they let it apart, apart from the nature of the courts, which is sort of a, an independent issue, uh, there was a, there was a a, a bar, and um, there, I guess the two things about it that deserve note: there, there, there was a strange um, apprenticeship system uh, in which 
uh, it was said that the the apprentices didn't apprentice and the mentors didn't mentor. Uh, and I, and that was certainly true in the case of Maklakoff because he ended up, he, he really was established as a lawyer uh, before any apprenticeship could actually be launched. He was nominally the apprentice of a very fine person who uh, became a friend of his, but uh, he, he sailed into success really uh, remarkably quickly. But the, there was the, a uh, there wasn't the sort of uh, association activities that I think are available to modern American lawyers. There was something called the wandering clubs, and these were just gatherings of lawyers uh, who met uh, weekly or from time to time. Anyway, they were called wandering because the site of the meeting would float around. Uh, from member to member, uh, because I mean they didn't have any physical headquarters, uh, and uh, Maklakoff was very active in that, a, a sign of his general gregariousness. The other thing I wanted to mention about the bar was that although it fluctuated, the, um, the there were various barriers against Jews. What made that a tolerable, if kind of irksome, uh, system is that even before they became full-fledged lawyers, they could do everything that full-fledged lawyers do. So many of the most prominent lawyers uh, in Russia were, in fact, Jewish. Uh, There was a brief moment after the, in the, in the first few days of the February Revolution, when Maklakov was a so-called commissar of the Ministry of Justice, and he used that time to eliminate the uh, barriers on Jews becoming full-fledged lawyers. And since since you mentioned that topic, it's sort of a recurring theme in the reformer that Makwakov had. It seems like a particular. Uh, affinity towards Jews and opposed the anti-Semitism that was endemic in the Soviet Union. What drew Maklakov to the Jewish cause? I uh, I think it's a slight overstatement to say he was drawn to the Jewish cause. I, th- I think he was a, a staunch believer uh, in the having government that treats people fairly and equally. And if there was any, I mean, there were actually plenty of targets of the czarist regime, plenty of peoples that the czarist regime failed to treat fairly and equally. But I suppose in his immediate life, uh, probably the ones most often exposed to unfair treatment uh, were Jewish. And and so I think he, he was naturally... Uh, he responded to that. There is, and, and I deal with this uh, in the book, there is a claim that he uh, either was Semitic or a, a more neutral observer says not pro-Semitic. And the, the not pro-Semitic is probably true. I mean, for example, Churchill, I think, was actually affirmatively drawn to Jews. I don't, I don't think that's really true of Maklakoff. He, he refers in some of his correspondence to um, 
indulging in a sort of zoological anti-Semitism, meaning he thought, and it's hard for me to sort of grasp, he didn't think they were nice looking. Um, but that seems to have had no effect on his behavior towards them. So that at, at every stage where actually something on behalf of Jews can be done, uh, he is ready to do it. There's a, a, um, a passage that I liked in a debate in 1916 where a, a bill is being amended and Maklakoff is making sure that some relatively small but still correct things are being done in favor of Jews, correcting a, a previous, uh, basically a, a badly written previous provision. Uh, and Kerensky is uh, talking at length, trying to extend the bill to be much broader to remove disabilities of Jews. Uh, but uh, Maklakoff says that in the particular context, which is probably too complicated to go into here, in the particular context, it's just impossible to attach that to the, uh, the bill that was before the legislature, the Duma. And uh, anyway, Kerensky goes on and on and on. And um, there's a, an ardent anti-Semite who gets up and says, uh, I'm much more afraid of Maklakoff than of Kerensky. And I, and I think that was because he saw that the sort of careful, measured approach and, and politically savvy approach that Maklakoff was taking uh, was much more likely to uh, eliminate uh, the regime's anti behavior than Kerensky's fulminations. Given the realities of the Russia that Maklakov was born into, how did he come to respect the ideas of consent of the governed, the rule of law, private property rights, to some degree a semblance of separation of powers and federalism? Yeah, those are, those are all interesting questions. I think federalism, well, fe yeah, federalism in, in the sense of autonomy for the non-Russian areas, such as Poland. Um, how did he come to it? I mean, uh, I think you start with his family. And uh, his father had been uh, clearly a supporter of the so-called great reforms, the, the reforms of Alexander II, above all emancipation in 1861, and the improvement of the judicial system in 1861. The, the basic idea seemed to prevail, at least as Maklakov saw writing about it later, that these were a good start, they should be carried further, uh, and, and since they, they basically involved uh, producing a or trying to edging towards a produce a, a regime with an independent judiciary, uh, the rule of law and secure rights for people. Uh, it was natural for him, I think, to move in that direction. I should say that um, although although that's the way I read his family life, I have to confess that he had a brother, a younger brother, brought up in the same household, who in fact turned out to be 
a staunch supporter of the regime, and in many respects, the uh, well, the the uh, one of the more active uh, people in the regime in uh, in carrying out its uh, reactionary character. Uh, that's his brother Nikolai, and for example, uh, there's, there's a famous anti-Semitic case, uh, the prosecution of Menachem Bayliss. And my, my character, Vasily Maklakov, was the principal defender of Bayliss, while Nikolai Maklakov, his brother, was the minister of, of internal affairs and was uh, aggressively pushing the prosecution and even doing things which were uh, extremely uh, questionable. Well, questionable is, is understating it. Uh, I think probably almost certainly unlawful and certainly uh, improper uh, in, for example, eavesdropping on the jurors in the trial. So, so I, I can't attribute Vasily's position entirely to to that. It's the the. Um, the interesting, I mean, the curious thing about Maklakov, he, he, he goes into the legal profession, and the legal profession, I think it's fair to say, was, was more or less part of the liberal intelligentsia, uh, which um, was actually not so much in favor of private property and that sort of thing. So he's, he, throughout his life, he's put in a funny bind because... The only political party that he feels at all comfortable in is one which is really quite hostile to private property. So the the question is not how he became liberal, but how he became liberal with uh, a concern about such things as private property. And uh, so he, he fits well into the classical liberal mode, although not perfectly. Uh, but he's in a country where uh, there's very little support for that. Yeah, there's a line in The Reformer about Maklakov in the Duma, and you write, monarchists to right of him, revolutionaries to left. And so here we are stuck in the middle with, with Maklakov. The word that comes to mind when I think of Maklakov is, is prudence. Yeah, he's sort of yeah. seeking to push for the most politically and culturally acceptable position on the most critical issues that he could push uh, in the way that would have the most sway. Is that the principle in your view by which he lived? I, th- I think that's fair to say. I, I want to qualify that a little bit in the sense that um, he, he preferred half a loaf to no loaf very clearly. Uh, that's extremely visible in the, in the debate that you just mentioned. Um, I think he was willing to he was willing to take positions that probably didn't have much prospect of immediate uh, fulfillment, um, but he wouldn't risk something good, something good actually happening in order to do that. And that's what's what's particularly vivid in the in the debate that you've mentioned, because he is he is pursuing improvement within a context while Kerensky is sounding off. 
What, in your view, were the most significant reform efforts in Makhlakov's career? Yeah, uh, I guess it, it, it depends. Is, is one thinking of what was accomplished or what was tried? Um, I mean, he was constantly trying uh, and edging things along. And I, and I suppose the, the area where that mostly bore fruit was in judicial reform in uh, bringing about a condition where the courts available to peasants would be less like a branch of the political administration. And uh, that was a very delicate and complicated thing. And I, he, he certainly didn't have complete success on it, but he, he helped edge the, the system towards more independence for these, more independence and more law-abidingness, if I may put it that way, awkward phrase, um, for those courts. So they were not just tools of the uh, executive administration. You know, if asked to single out one, I think that's the one where probably his heart was in it most ardently. And because, of course, it was central to his experience through through life uh, and probably the one where he could be said to have made the most progress. Speak a bit to Makwakov's dealings with Stolypin. Yes. Well, that um, his his first great speech is an attack on something that Stolypin had done. They in the summer of uh, 1906, there were um, assassinations going on uh, in Russia by the terrorist left, amounting uh, to about 300 government officials killed per month. And the regime responded to that with something that you can understand them doing, but was still a fairly miserable solution. And that was the so-called field courts martial. And these uh, had the power to try people. They were tried by an army officer with no legal training. They were charged by some other army officer, uh, and it would usually be in terms that uh, suggested that this person's elimination from the face of the earth was, would be very useful. Uh, it's unclear whether the act was even a power to impose a sentence less than death. In any event, virtually all people uh, who got charged in this system were sentenced to death. Uh, and there was no appeal, and the death penalty was inflicted almost immediately. And uh, other people uh, attacked this bill. Um, Maklikoff attacked it on a, on a somewhat unusual ground. I mean, he attacked it on sort of the usual, the kind of obvious grounds of its, uh, you know, its savagery. It was savage. Uh, but he also... Uh, he, he realized that Stolypin was, uh, was fundamentally in favor of the rule of law and thought that a, a, a rule of law state 
was desirable, not only desirable, but really important. So Makhlikov attacked him on precisely those grounds, and he framed his attack in words that I associate with the, the wonderful passage of A Man for All Seasons by Robert Bolt, uh, where, um, uh, what's his name, it's Sir Thomas More is attacking this flunky who wants to act illegally, and, and Sir Thomas, in the words of, of uh, Bolt, says, England is planted thick with laws, and when you cut those down, where will you hide? And Makhlikov says, Duma, essentially speaking to Philippin, uh, if you proceed in this way, you will not, you, you may defeat the revolution in some sense, but you will not have a state, a state with the rule of law, uh, you will have simply a chaos. And so uh, I, haven't, I haven't worded it as well as Maklakoff did, I'm sorry, but anyway, he put it very, very clearly and very firmly. And it's pretty clear that Philippin picked up on this and, and responded to it, and it, it, it hit Philippin um, in with a with a, a it hit a an aspect of him that others uh were a little bit slow to see and and made him more responsive to eliminating this system the system in fact came to an end that was partly because of, of various technical rules which is probably too complicated to go into here but uh I, there's evidence both from Stephen's words and the decline in use of these courts that, uh, that he was affected by what Maklakoff said. Now, fast forwarding to 1917 and speaking of lawlessness, uh, what did Maklakov seek to achieve during the turmoil and tumult of that year? Well, um, there's, there's the... There's a period before, essentially, the provisional government comes into existence. And Maklakov, uh, at, at early stages where riots in Petrograd are beginning to threaten the regime, ends up in conversation with some uh, high officials, including the, the then foreign minister of Russia, uh, to try to create some regime that will essentially create a, a cabinet that will uh, earn the trust of the people. And nothing comes to that essentially because they, at, at just the critical moment, the, the rioting appears to be under control. So the regime loses interest sort of compromise. This is a, a terribly sad moment lost. Whether, whether it would have worked or not, it's hard to say, but in any event, uh, the moment was lost. Uh, then, then comes the, um, essentially the way in which the czarist regime falls. And the, so far as I can make out, the great difficulty is that uh, Maklakov was not in on the key decisions of Duma leadership at that point. And um, the, the, there was a sort of quasi-formal institution, a council of elders, 
uh, and the trouble is that had that had two representatives of each party. And while it would have made sense to have him be one of them, uh, he was not. Uh, so he was not in a position either to to advocate uh, the the preservation of the monarchy, uh, and he was certainly not in a position to advocate uh, preservation of essentially the, the constitution that the czarist regime had set up in 1906. I mean, the, the people taking over in 197 in February of 1917 believed that what the czar had done in 1905-6 was fake, was a fake constitution. So they they saw no no reason to stick by it. Uh, and created this provisional government, which essentially had no no real legitimacy in the sense of a a link to any kind of or a link or dependence on any kind of legislative uh, institution. They tried to solve that problem by promising a constituent assembly to be elected uh, in November, which is eight months away. Uh, but that that wasn't very convincing. To people, so the the provisional government, despite his efforts, which were sort of which were in a way cut short by the essentially the people who were taking charge at that point, um, the the provisional government started off on a on a very questionable footing. In, in, in some sense, Maklakov seems a bit like the Forrest Gump of Russian history in the early <laughs> in, in the early twentieth century. You talk about his involvement with one of the most infamous figures in Russian history, arguably Rasputin. Tell us a bit about Maklakov's oh. involvement in the conspiracy to murder Rasputin. Oh, oh, yeah. That I mean. Um... That is not Maklakov at his best, I think. Uh, basically, uh, he he gets word that uh, Felix Yusupov um, would like to speak with him about something, and and he was uh, one of Russia's richest people and a relative of the Tsar. So uh, Maklakov agreed to see him, and Yusupov came to. Uh, Maklakov's apartment and said that he and others uh, had in mind uh, assassinating Rasputin, who at this time was seen by people as a both a powerful and an evil force on the Tsar and uh, the Tsarina uh, Alexandra. How, how influential he was is, is uncertain. Maklakov said right off the bat, uh, I don't think eliminating Rasputin is going to do any good. I think there, there are basic problems here uh, that that is not a solution to. Uh, but uh, Yusupov kept at it. And in the end, Maklakov starts giving them him and, and well, and through him, the other conspirators advice. It's, uh, it's very alarming because one of the conspirators is Perskavich, who's also a member he in in a hall outside the Duma, he starts speaking in a very loud voice about the imminent assassination. I mean, he's for for a conspirator to do an assassination, he's really the last person you would want. 
Anyway, uh, despite that, Maklakoff, he, he, he justifies himself by saying, this is going to be done. These people are going to try this. I should at least try to make it less crazy uh, with some chance of at least accomplishing what they think they're doing. Uh, so he does that large, largely by talk. But then in the, in the last big scene, Yusupov uh, sees this kind of club. It's hard to describe it. Um, it's, a, it's a thing that Maklakov had picked up on a visit to Morocco, and it seems to have heavy weights at either end. It's maybe a foot or so long. Uh, and Yusupov says, oh, can I take that? And Maklakov resists the request, but at the end, yields to it. And so Maklakov, in his major account of this after the revolution, uh, says he could be charged as an accessory before the fact to the assassination. And I think that's true. Uh, on the other hand, the, the, the role of the, the club apparently does play a minor role in the assassination, uh, but, uh, but it goes ahead. And, um, and the result is the result is not anything the conspirators hoped for at all. Uh, the essentially the the peasant masses who were who were ready to hear the worst about Rasputin before he was assassinated seemed very generally to have taken the view once he was assassinated by aristocrats uh, that here you have one of us a peasant who somehow or other gets close to the seat of power and the aristocrats kill him off. Uh, so he becomes sort of a martyr. And on top of that, uh, the Tsar and Tsarina get more withdrawn from, uh, from everything actually, in the sense of uh, not having, uh, I mean, Rasputin for all his faults, at least some sort of contact with, uh, with a set of Russian ideas, but the, the Tsar and Tsarina seem to be really even more isolated after he is killed. What are the lessons of Maklakov's life when looked at through the prism of others seeking liberal reforms in autocratic or otherwise lawless nations? Oh, yeah, uh, well, I mean, the lesson I take away from this is that uh, it's extremely tough. Um, a, a regime may want to, uh, to bind its bureaucracy in laws, and that would be a great step forward. And, and many, that's another area of, of Makhlukov's efforts, to try to get uh, essentially uh, rights to recovery in court of people who are victimized by regime officials acting unlawfully. And he makes a little progress on that. Um, but there's deep resistance to anything going very far, particularly deep resistance to anything that will uh, confine the people at the very top of the system. Uh, as, as I look around the world, um, I, you know, you look at uh, the Arab Spring and you look at Russia 
and Ukraine. And the actually the the czarist regime looks comparatively hopeful. I mean, they do accept the constitution and it, it, it has holes in it. There's no doubt about that. But they do really seem to, uh, for the most part, try to uh, adhere to it. It, it seems to me you don't see anything like that uh, in the, the regimes that trouble us around the world. And, and there seems to be nothing to really uh, bring them uh, towards the rule of law. So in, in a way, Maklikoff, <laughs> I find it odd to say this, had it easy. Um, but even so, he was unable to make much progress. I think, I think the, the fundamental thing, and, and this goes to the question of why the, the liberal revolution in February was brought to an end by the Bolshevik revolution in October, uh, basically the, the civil foundation of the rule of law didn't much exist. Um, the, the courts were not very broadly respected as a source of law, and there was a good reason for that, because the regime did try to bend their decisions in cases where the regime uh, was concerned. Um, and uh, essentially, uh, in, in terms of enterprise, that was very uh, significantly hampered. All other countries by this time, all other developed countries at this time, enabled people to form a corporation just by filing a few papers. In Russia, it required uh, getting special permission uh, from the regime, and that was obviously an opportunity for crony capitalism. Um, and the, the, let's just take enterprise, the uh, businesses in Russia were, uh, had surprisingly few Russians in them. They had Russians, or at least they had Russians of German ancestry and Russians of Jewish ancestry in them. Uh, so that, in other words, somehow or other, those two sets of people had more of the entrepreneurial skills, which I think would have been likely to develop civil society in terms of bringing uh, people together to to solve social problems um, than than the actual Russian Russians. Um, I should say on this that you're asking where Maklikov got some of his basic viewpoints. At some fairly early stage, uh, he helped finance translations of Tocqueville from French into uh, Russian. And I think that, that surely, uh, it may be that he liked Tocqueville because Tocqueville was saying things that he uh, had already come to think. Uh, and, and it may be that, that Tocqueville persuaded him on some matters, but in any event, by some fairly early stage, he had come to take a fairly Tocquevillian view of so social and political life. And essentially, as, as you see in Tocqueville's Democracy in America, uh, that view puts great stress on the ability of small groups of people to act together and to solve problems. And the regime essentially did very little 
to allow that to happen. You and I had a lot to prevent it. And you describe the lack of a, any semblance of a free enterprise system effectively in Russia a hundred years ago, and and you well, talk that's about an overstatement. That's that's an overstatement, but but it was certainly it was underdeveloped compared to places like Germany and France. And and you look at Russia today, and and in some respect, it still is kind of a crony capitalist society where so. you you have you had a kind of faux liberalization uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union and oligarchs who are essentially Putin's handpicked friends who control industry in the country i guess 100 years on if the system hasn't fundamentally changed at least economically is that a byproduct of Russian culture, the nature of the Russian people simply being inhospitable to liberalization, or is it something else? Yeah, I'm very reluctant to adopt any view like that. I mean, I think picture any country subjected to a regime like the Soviet regime uh, from 1917 to, it depends on how you count, let's say 1987. Uh, sort of mid Gorbachev. Um, that's 70 years in which you have a regime which is really affirmatively hostile to any kind of independent activity by individuals. Uh, so that, uh, I mean, uh, simple, simple acts of ordinary commerce between individuals regarded as speculation and therefore crimes for which severe penalties could be inflicted. And the you know, uh, meetings between people had to be held in kitchens and, and had to be very careful at that because, of course, many of the kitchens were bugged and, and other devices were being used to try to, I mean, use of, of uh, uh, essentially turning individuals into uh, spies for the state were being used. So uh, I think any country that's been through that is going to uh, is going to have trouble. Suppose there had been no war and Russia had sort of inched along uh, after 1914 the way it had uh, from 1905 to 1914. I think, uh, I mean, maybe I'm optimistic in this, but I think gradually civil society would have developed. Uh, it would have made uh, the use of essentially uh, lawless measures by the state. Uh, so there would be so many people marshaled against that and able to act in some way against that, uh, that it would have yielded to a sort of liberal regime. Maybe not ideal, but substantial progress. The name of the book is The Reformer, How One Liberal Fought to Preempt the Russian Revolution. And we've been speaking with its author, Judge Stephen F. Williams. Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. For more from Encounter Books, visit us at EncounterBooks.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Vile's Freeway.